Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It's a sad reality that when we send our military into battle, many do get hurt. So as much as we try to give them the best tools for the battle, so too must we develop the tools to help them fight against any battle injuries that they may sustain. One class of these injuries is known as the traumatic brain injuries. We will often use the initials of TBI. These injuries can cause problems across many areas of a person's life. One of the more commonly known injuries is known as post-traumatic stress disorder, whose initials are also quite well known as PTSD. But we're here to talk about how traumatic brain injury can show up in many other ways as well. Today we are joined by three researchers and clinicians from the United States Air Force who have graciously given us some of their time to explore this topic and tell us about their work in dealing with these conditions. Colonel Mark Packer is the Executive Director of the Department of Defense Hearing Center of Excellence. Dr. Victoria Tepe is the Research Portfolio Coordinator for the Department of Defense Hearing Center of Excellence. And Dr. Allison Chernich is a neuropsychologist and the Deputy Director for the Defense Centers of Excellence for Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury. We thank you all for being here. This is a huge topic, so let's try to condense it a bit. Colonel Packer, let's begin with a straightforward question. What is a traumatic brain injury? Dr. Strauss, I appreciate the opportunity to answer this, and I may defer that right away to Dr. Cernich, who deals with TBI. My field of expertise is neurotology. I deal with a brain injury a little bit, but I also respect that uh, Dr. Cernich has the, the con when it comes to anything official for the brain centers. Well, Dr. Strauss, this is Dr. Cernich, and I'd be happy to, to answer that for you. Traumatic brain injury is generally a blow or jolt to the head that disrupts the normal function of the brain. There's a range of severity of injury, and it can range anywhere from brief loss of consciousness or alteration of consciousness, meaning you knock your head and briefly either see stars or are unaware of your surroundings, or it can range all the way up to significant loss of consciousness with coma for extended periods of time and significant disruption of brain activity. So there are a number of definitions of traumatic brain injury. The VA and DOD have a shared one, but there are others from various professional organizations if you want us to discuss those, but we're happy to. Are the differences in the definition of these sufficient enough to cause a person problems once they have sustained an injury? And that leads to the question of, it seems too often that this condition is misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. Do the definition issues cause misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis problems? That's a great question. For the most part, the definitions are relatively similar. The only real differential is that the VA and DOD recognize an alteration of consciousness, which can be a little bit harder to define. Many of them recognize a loss of consciousness. There's also some differing definitions when it comes to concussion, which is mild traumatic brain injury, but is often given the moniker of concussion simply because it doesn't always result in a loss of consciousness. It more often results in temporary loss of the ability to lay down new memories called post-traumatic amnesia and potentially some dazing or confusing behaviors where the person is alert and walking and still functioning but may appear dazed or confused, similar to what you may see on the NFL Sunday where a player gets up from the turf and looks like he's wandering and and not able to respond to commands. The bigger issue, I think, is misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis. And I don't know that that has to do with the, the definition as much as it has to do with awareness of the injury. Much of the time, that awareness of the injury is when the person presents for care or alternatively doesn't present for care. 
there have been a number of campaigns to raise awareness of traumatic brain injury as a distinct disorder and get people into care early so that you can prevent chronic difficulties going forward. And I'll add that that awareness has really resulted in a rise in diagnoses in the Department of Defense. And the CDC is also pursuing campaigns to raise awareness for youth and collegiate athletes. And that's also resulted in a rise of diagnoses. A place where we see fewer diagnoses in response to more limited awareness campaigns is in a growing population of brain injuries, which is in the elderly. Dr. Cernick, this is Mark Packard. If I might add one other prospect, I agree, I think, that awareness and recognition for any of these silent injuries is extremely important, and the Defense Center of Excellence has done a great job in raising the awareness not only for the individual but for the battle buddy that oftentimes is the one that might identify and refer that person to a care facility. The military members are basically athletes, and they do their job well, and when they suffer an injury, a lot of times the first response is to just shake it off and get back in the game. So a lot of times they don't realize that some of the potential consequence of these milder injuries and concussion and mild TBI is that they're progressive and they are cumulative. Even though they may feel like adrenaline's flowing, they get back to work and function and do reasonably well, they are at higher risk for subsequent injury and there are potential consequences from the initial impact. This is Dr. Teppi. I just wanted to add, I mean, I, everything that Dr. Cernich and Dr. Packer have said are, is absolutely correct. And I think an additional layer of complication in the misdiagnosis problem is later down the line. When we get past the initial point of injury, there can be delayed manifestations of injury, especially in MTBI, so that when caregivers, for example, the psychiatric community might see a patient well post-injury, and there may be symptoms that that patient does not recognize as having any relevance to a head injury that may have sustained weeks or months in advance. And at that point, I think it's very important to raise awareness of the need to ask that question. Do you have a history of head injury? Even a minor one can have delayed effects. Part of the problem, the big part of the challenge, of course, is that our brains is where everything happens. It's where we see, it's where we hear, it's where we feel happy or sad, it's where we do math and communicate and make decisions and sleep and everything. When one or more of those things stops working well, unfortunately, the one thing the brain can't do is tell us what's broken or why. If I can't reach for a high shelf, I can tell you, well, it's because my shoulder hurts. And we can look at my shoulder and see what's wrong in there. But if I'm suddenly very depressed and fatigued, I can't tell you, well, my hypothalamus hurts or my serotonin levels have crashed. We don't have conscious awareness of the anatomical and physiological changes in our brain. So they're extraordinarily complex. Those changes can be due to physical injuries, psychological injuries, hormonal changes, aging, any number of things. It's an enormous challenge to determine the root of the problem that makes it all the more important that all disciplines of caregiving recognize the need to ask that question because any number of problems can be due to a head injury that may not have happened just yesterday. When something happens to one of our soldiers and they're hurt, is there a protocol that's being developed on how we monitor them to make sure that if they did suffer a traumatic brain injury that we intervene as soon as we can? Does that exist? Yes, it does. I think that there are several mechanisms in place and being developed that, that will account for uh, caring for these individuals. Concussion care centers in theater are the initial stopping point for evaluation of wounded members that have mild TBI or concussion. And 
there's an AeroVac system in place for elevation based on need. And so as someone comes in with significant symptoms, they are triaged and placed accordingly in the evacuation system for referral to the appropriate level of care. I think that Along with that, there have been several registry attempts to document and to gain the data that will help modify any type of intervention, identify the epidemiological risk and patterns, as well as identify the best practices of intervention so that we can offer better education and better flow of traffic, if you will. One thing I might add here is that when somebody comes in after a severe injury with multiple wounds, the Glasgow Coma Scale is oftentimes used to determine the level of brain injury. From a hearing perspective, that is something that monitors visual motor responses to a caregiver's commands, and it is based on the ability to hear and communicate. And although that is fairly standard and well-structured way to identify more severe injuries, it does have flaws, and somebody who's exposed to a blast with significant overpressures can have had a temporary auditory threshold shifts that impair their ability to respond back. So sometimes Even though the brain may have a milder injury, the communication effect of a hearing loss can miscategorize the care. Dr. Sernich, do you have anything to add to that? The only other thing that I will say is I think there's some differences too, interestingly, in, you know, when you see someone with a severe traumatic brain injury, as Colonel Packer noted, especially in the combat theater, it's often that they don't just have a severe brain injury. Often they have other brain injuries unless it's a penetrating brain injury from a gunshot wound or shrapnel. For the milder injuries, not only do we have recovery care centers, but I think the Department of Defense really recognized early on that because of the operational tempo and because of the fact that in many cases when you have a milder traumatic brain injury that you could potentially cope with the symptoms independently, folks weren't raising their hands to be evaluated and saying, you know, I may have had a brain injury because they either wanted to remain with their unit, they felt that they were required there, they didn't know that they had had an injury, et cetera. So one of the things that the Department of Defense determined was needed for policy was that if you were in an event that placed you at risk for a brain injury, that there would essentially be a mandated evaluation to determine if you had symptoms that were consistent with a brain injury. And then you would be referred for evaluation and care given any operational demands going on, obviously. If you were in full firefight, there would be some, some limitations with that. But I think that was really innovative in the sense that especially for the milder injuries where it's a little bit harder to tell. We don't have the types of blood tests or rapid scans that are field deployable to recognize these injuries. It was really an innovation to say, well, if you've been in a vehicle rollover, if you've fallen a specific distance, if you've been within a certain amount of distance from a major explosion, if you've had a major blow to the head, that you would, in fact, be evaluated independent of whether or not you were reporting. And I think to the greatest extent, that's also what's starting to happen in some of the athletic injuries where folks are starting to be more aware of how to recognize the injury when it occurs and evaluate the athlete. The evaluation of the athlete, similar to what they're doing in the Department of Defense, is independent of those that are in the command position. So it's not the coach or it's not the commander, it's somebody who's do the evaluation and ensure that the person's ready to, to perform and not place them at risk for a further injury. I think that was a really innovative way of looking at how do we recognize, diagnose, and 
provide and get people into care following a brain injury. And there are a number of guidelines out there as to how to manage the initial injury and where folks should be referred, some of them from the CDC, others from the Department of Defense and Department of Veterans Affairs. But that does bring up the point that some of these injuries are not recognized at the point of injury, and so there are different mechanisms to deal with it if it's identified later. One of the things that I found fascinating as I was reading in preparation for this interview was the association of vestibular pathology with mental disorders. I didn't realize that the numbers were as high as indeed they appear to be. But I find it fascinating that if someone had a blast, a bomb went off near them, it caused all sorts of hearing problems. Where do we go with this? Tell us a little bit, please, about what a vestibular pathology is and how it's connected to a mental disorder. I could feel that. Okay. I think that Dr. Tepe has already mentioned that the brain is the central integrator and balance function has multiple sensory inputs to help somebody in their station. In other words, to be able to keep their eyes on an object while they move and to maintain their position sense in space. A lot of that input comes from vision. A lot of it comes from the inner ear and significant amount of it comes from postural control and the joints. That's all filtered through the brain and relayed back to musculoskeletal system to prop you up in space and to tell you where you are in relation to the world and gravity. When a significant event occurs, whether it be blast or blunt trauma to the head, many of those systems are affected. And especially when we're talking about field injuries that a warrior sustains, it's not uncommon to have pre-existing as well as acute injuries from chronic stress and strain on the musculoskeletal system to have blast impact the vision and the ear system, so the peripheral sensory systems, and then to have on top of that a concussion or a mild TBI that disrupts the integration of all those processes. Mix that with some blood loss, high stress levels, and the metabolic and the vascular responses are altered as well. So dizziness as a general category is highly prevalent with many of these injuries. And as the injuries are taken care of and sorted out, we're able to use the diagnostic strategies that will determine how much of this is a central injury, how much is a peripheral injury, all done in care centers and labs. Some of this, as with mild TBI, can be treated with recovery in place and time to allow the compensation that will allow further function. But balance is something that, like with many the other senses, if balance is off slightly, it creates a lot of overdrive of the metabolic system to compensate. And some of those mechanisms for the compensation can overdrive the mental system. You know, fatigue, the system causes more than necessary concentration to maintain the standard abilities that the individual is used to. So some of the stress and strain just in the ability to compensate can manifest in anxiety and depression and personality swings, irritability, and not only just to maintain your sense, but also the dizziness itself. It, it can be episodic and sporadic and cause a certain amount of uncertainty and apprehension in life and everything that we do. Do you think sometimes that we cluster the notion of post-traumatic stress disorder to be too big of a cluster and that we don't properly call it TBI? Someone used the term MTBI for mild traumatic brain injury. Do we overuse PTSD? I think 
that's as big a political question as it is a diagnostic question. And I would tend to avoid the the former. I think is among the biggest challenges in military medicine currently is is the conversation about how best to diagnose or differentially diagnose PTSD versus mild TBI because there's a significant amount of symptom overlap. And again, the brain is at the heart of both of these conditions. And so sometimes kind of just a semantic debate about which came first, the chicken or the egg. The problem for the patient, of course, is that they have symptoms. And regardless of where those symptoms are coming from, many times it's both. Sometimes in the civilian context as well, we have traumatic brain injury and post-trauma. The challenge, I think, just from the caregiving perspective is to say we're going to have to deal with these symptoms regardless of the cause. Sometimes the solution is going to be the same regardless. Other times, maybe not. And again, that's a challenge. I don't think any of us have a clear answer. I would agree with the others. I think primarily the issue is making sure that we capture all of the diagnoses and symptoms that a patient is presenting with and then make sure that those symptoms are the ones we're addressing. For 20% of the civilian population and about 30 to 37% of the military population, when you suffer a brain injury, you may be suffering it in a situation where your life is threatened, which puts you at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. Imagine yourself in a car crash and essentially waking up and realizing you've lived through something that could have potentially killed you. Some people react to that and say, wow, was I lucky? And other folks react to that and feel significant threats to their life and significant anxiety develops. The fact is that these are traumatic events. So, yes. Can one event spur two diagnostic entities? Well, no different than what we're talking about where one diagnostic category, traumatic brain injury, can spur symptoms that are vestibular, that are more behavioral, like depression or anxiety, or cognitive with problems with memory or sensory. It's really no different. It's just making sure as a practitioner that, one, you recognize that those are potential risks that come out of an injury event, and, two, that you evaluate them appropriately and make sure the person has good treatment. I think what we would all advocate there's a need for in those situations is better coordination and integration of healthcare providers themselves. When a person, whether this person is military or civilian, encounters TBI and balance disorder and PTSD, and then is treated in a very stovepiped fashion by a neurologist, by a vestibular expert, by a psychiatrist or psychologist, those treatment paths don't necessarily acknowledge the strain that the other treatment paths may be causing. And I say this from direct experience. I have a very good friend and next-door neighbor who was in an automobile accident over a year ago and is suffering from all three of those conditions. When she goes for her balance therapy, which is very helpful. It's been very productive for her. But for days after she has that appointment, she also experiences flashbacks to the accident. It provokes her PTSD symptoms and so on and so forth. So there is obviously the system that is the brain. You're calling on multiple resources of energy strain as you try to heal in all these different domains. The healthcare paradigm that we currently work under, certainly in the civilian world, I think maybe gradually now to a lesser extent in military medicine because I think the research has increased our awareness in military medicine for the need for better integration. But I think civilian medicine could learn a lot from what military research has to offer in this area. One of the things that we often see is that people may deny their symptoms and when friends or family begin to see it, they really need to speak up 
talk to the person, talk to the doctors, talk to the clergy if there's that person in these people's lives, whomever, just not let it sit and be untreated because that's when we really get into problems. Colonel Mark Packer is the executive director of the Department of Defense Hearing Center of Excellence. Dr. Victoria Tepe is the research portfolio coordinator for the Department of Defense Hearing Center of Excellence. And Dr. Allison Chernitz is a neuropsychologist and the deputy director for the Defense Centers of Excellence for Psychological Health and TBI. Government has such long names to things. Thank you all for this. It is a topic bigger than we could capture here, but if we got a few points out to people and they reach out for help, then we did our service. I thank you all very much for your time, and I also thank you very much for the efforts that you are spending in helping people who were injured while they were in our military. Thank you all very much, and have a good holiday. Yeah, thank you, sir. Appreciate your patience in getting this all together, too. It took some time, but we did it.